You're listening to The Rick Z Show. I'm your host, Rick Z, and we're coming to you from the Clubhouse Studios here in beautiful downtown Rhinebeck. Our guest today, I'm very happy to say, wonderful musician, all-around great guy, enigmatic character. Uh, I'll go as far as to say that. I'm talking about Willie Amrod. Willie, welcome to The Rick Z Show. Thanks for having me. It's really exciting. It's great (laughs) to see you, and it's my pleasure to have you on the show. You've been playing a long time, Willie, a lot longer than I have, and I've been playing a long time. I can't believe how long I've been playing, 33 years or something like that. You predate me by maybe 10 years, 15 maybe. I don't know. When did you start playing? Well, I started playing when I was 10 years old. I started playing guitar when I was 12 years old, and I was born in 1952, so so my arithmetic to be done. I'll figure it out later when I listen to the show. (laughs) (laughs) But professionally speaking, when did you start playing? Uh, when I was twelve or so, I started playing. We had a record, yeah. We had a record deal. My brother was the, my brother was a musical genius. Played piano and wrote songs and, and kind of pushed me into, doing the music thing because he needed a band and I, and I loved playing music. He got me in a in a band in in third grade, which was unbelievable because nobody's allowed in the band till fourth grade in most schools and, so he. He learned some stuff and he taught it to me and then he brought me into the school and the music teacher let me in the band in third grade. So we started in in a marching band. Soon thereafter, it was a, the fire department in Suffern, New York, had a marching band. We started, he only got $10 a parade, but it was still professional. <laughs> and then we played uh, some rock and roll music now, the Beatles were were just coming out, and you know, I, when I first started playing guitar, Elvis was the king, and and the Beatles came out soon thereafter. So maybe like I've been playing since '63, something like that, '64. And you have a big family. You're one of what seven kids? Yeah. And you have 45 cousins or something like that. Uh, are there a lot of musicians in the family? I know your brother and yourself yeah. are musicians. Yeah, I have a brother that died. He was a musician. And uh, nobody else really took it too seriously. All they played music in high school. They had ability, though. Yeah, some music, I feel, you know, some people that have uh, gifted naturally, I don't think I was that, you know, but... You work hard enough at it, you can uh, play music. And that's why I think so many kids today don't want to work at it. You know, it's a, it takes a while before it sounds okay. I'm glad I didn't play the violin because they sound horrible in the beginning to know where your fingers <laughs> got to be. You know, <laughs> That's true. You know, I'm, I don't get a chance to ask this very often. Somebody's been playing in this area as long as you have, but... What was it like back in the 70s playing in the Hudson Valley? Was it vastly different than it is today or in the 80s? What was it like? Well, there were some, a lot more places you could play. Mm -hmm. And there was some great musicians around. I mean, when I was like 15 or 16, my brother was a year older than me. We ended up playing, opened up a show for Janis Joplin and Paul Butterfield, both who were living in Woodstock at the time. And they were getting ready to play some really big shows. And one they were playing some colleges in New England. And uh, one of the guys that uh, 
was in charge of one of the concerts at, uh, I think it was called Franklin Pierce College. It's still around. Franklin Pierce in New Hampshire. Yeah, yeah. So Janice and, and Butterfield were going up there, and I never heard of Janice Joplin because she had the first hit, was called Big Brother and the Holding Company. And I, of course, heard of Paul Butterfield Blues Band, and to this day, they're one of my favorite bands. And after seeing them play, I, I had to have horns in my band, and you know, I was fortunate enough to meet some really great horn players along the way. So that's where it all started with you and the horns. That's interesting. You know, a lot of people cite Paul Butterfield as a big influence. I know we had Robbie Dupree on the show last week, and he was talking about how that really changed his direction because... He said, Paul and I, we kind of looked like we were the same ilk. We had a similar look, and he would go down to the village and see Paul play. It was like a revelation to him. Cindy Cashdollar was another one that, I guess, Paul Butterfield kind of took her under his wing and uh-huh. had a really big influence on her and also you. So Woodstock was still kind of that, as I like to say, that fabled place back then. It isn't really that way anymore, is it? Well, there's not too many places to play. Now they got the Colony, but uh, I think Bearsville might be open again. I, I'm i not sure, but there used to be all kinds of nice places to play. Uh, the Tinker Street Cafe was a different name back then. Were there a lot of cover bands like there are today and there have been over the last 30 years, or was there more original music Original going on? music had a chance back then yeah. in, in all these clubs. I mean... I I remember being you know an audience guy and and I had no interest in listening to somebody play somebody else's music you know it was all about songwriting you know and I, at an early age my brother was writing the songs and I always uh, loved the idea that nobody played the music we played so we could play it any which way we want and nobody's saying oh they didn't play it right you know yeah. And, uh, you know, it's just something to be proud of. And, and the record companies were looking for original music. I mean, we had uh, a couple of record deals when we were very young, just based on the fact that my brother wrote music and he was pretty wild. And I, I think that it, if you had long hair, they'd give you a chance, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, Woodstock was great. You know, living around here, Bard College had, was a great place to to play music they had a really they had a uh, what do you call it a coffee house there was a lot of coffee houses going down for for the teenage crowd and not not everybody that went to them was teenagers but you know in other words non alcohol was good when you're 18 years old back then you could get in places you know we played a lot of places before we were old enough to do that so what time were we talking, late 60s, early 70s? When yeah, late 60s is when I moved to Red Hook in 1967. You know, we did not like Red Hook because it was kind of backwards. They were listening to the Beach Boys uh, surfing music when Jimi Hendrix is always already out and the Beatles already did Sgt. Pepper's. And, you know, we were influenced by, you know, like things that were going on of that nature and Red Hook wasn't so into it but first time we played at a high school dance Red Hook changed you know we had so many friends and fans <laughs> that I, I we loved Red Hook for that reason that you know we were we came from Rockland County and it was kind of a suburbia type scene and a lot of bands a lot of bands Jersey was right then as you know like 
the the rascals were out vanilla fudge strawberry alarm clock they were yeah there was john sebastian's group the loving spoonful these cats were really ruling the city new york city but we got to play in uh the village gate a couple of times we met this band NRBQ. I'm, I'm sure you know about those guys. In sure. 1969, I was in a bad car accident. I was trying to go to the Woodstock Festival, so I bought this van thing, and I crashed it up two days before the festival. So I didn't know how to drive, for one thing, but it didn't have any brakes either, so that didn't help. <laughs> <laughs> that puts a hindrance yeah, so on. So Joey Spompanato came to visit me in the hospital, and I didn't even know him at all. My brother met him at the Dutchess County Fair because the Q played there. Steve Ferguson, who was their uh, lead guitar player, he wrote a lot of their songs in the beginning. He was my biggest musical influence. I got to play with him a couple of times in my life, and he, He's on a couple of records that I made. He he played on a couple of songs. But NRBQ, as a band, they're probably the biggest influence on me. Then I met the JB Horns, and, and then I found the horn section of my dreams. <laughs> Willie, how many albums have you made? Well, of my own, only two, really. One is called Children of the Earth. And One the of my other. favorites, yep. And the other one is called Everywhere's Out of Town. Everywhere's Out of Town. I love that title, by the way. Yeah. We pl- I played bass from in my brother's band, and I made a couple records with him. And Gary Burke was actually in one of the bands my brother had. He got into the Juilliard School as a composer, which is pretty hard to do, especially since all he was composing was rock and roll. And it, the judges looked over his manuscripts and stuff and said, I don't think so. You got anything else you want to show us? And he, he played him a rock and roll song, and, and that's how he got in there. It was an amazing story. There was a wow. magazine back then called High Fidelity Magazine. It was before Rolling Stone and you know a lot of the popular music magazines, and he was on the cover of that magazine. Mostly what they did was they, they kind of wrote about the stereos that were great at the time, like Macintosh and stuff, you know, High Fidelity magazine. But they would write articles about, you know, musicians and stuff too. You know, Willie, you had a long, you still have a long-standing band, a band that you've been with for a long time. You always called them the in crowd, right? I mean, that was... Yeah, the in crowd was 20 years long. Started like mid-70s to the mid-90s. Then when I made the Children of the Earth record, I started calling the band the Children of the Earth, and as I Rob Leon, I played a lot with him. He was a bass player for the whole record. A, a great about. staple of the Hudson Valley music, a, a tremendous musician, unfortunately no longer with us, but guy could pretty much play anything. Yeah, Rob and Gary Burke, that was uh, the bass and drums rhythm section. I mean, when I first made that record, I didn't want to play the bass because I knew I was going to make too many mistakes, and Gary Burke was the producer and he would be in my ass about it. So I decided, let him pick the bass player. I wrote the songs and, and I'm gonna sing the songs and that's enough of a responsibility right there for me and I can enjoy it without having to be under the microscope. Cause I remember when, when Gary was in my brother's band and I was the bass player, there was the consensus of opinion that the only reason I was in the band was cause I was my brother's brother, you know? <laughs> 
no respect. <laughs> I know. You know, they had Juilliard musicians. Gary went to the Manhattan School of Music, so I was like, uh, went to New Paul's. <laughs> <laughs> I, I played the French horn in college, but I never played it again. The day I got out of college, never again. I never opened it up. You know, the in crowd had many incarnations over the years. I talked to you about this not too long ago, and you were telling me that you wished that you had had a set of musicians over that period of time that you kind of grew with, as opposed to having a revolving door of musicians. Well, the in-crowd pretty much ended up being a set of musicians, but the revolving doors came later, because the in-crowd guys, they some of them played on the Children of the Earth record, Dan Sheehan Bat, I call him. I like to call him Swamp Bat, but he doesn't always like that. I can't imagine why. <laughs> he plays the swampiest, filthiest guitar licks, and <laughs> I just make songs easily when he's around. He's like, you know, he's a great musician. But he was in the band from beginning to end, and so was the drummer, Tommy Cutton. And we had a couple different keyboard players and one saxophone player. Since I didn't use those guys on the record, when I met the J.B. Horns, I just had to leave them do what they do, you know? And Well, we'll talk about the <laughs> J.B. Horns. we got a lot more stuff to discuss. But before we go any further, I'd love our listeners to hear a little something of what you sound like, Willie. And this album, Children of the Earth, by the way, I've been listening to it all week. I just pop it on for enjoyment. I love this album. I think you got a great sound. It's really a minor masterpiece in a way. Uh, you know, I don't want to embarrass you, but I love this album. W what should we play off it? What do you like? <laughs> well, the Digger Man is the one that the people like the most. Mm, Digger Man, that is a great one. Why don't we play that? Uh, <laughs> hey, Rusty Man, let it roll. Digger Man by Willie Amrod.
great there's so many great songs on the album we'll play some more later gary burke produced that album yeah gary produced both of my records why work with gary i mean i know why i've worked with him myself he's a he's a great musician and a great producer but why don't you produce your own records what does gary bring to the table that you keep coming back for well i feel that a producer has to be able to say yeah that's good or you got to do it over and I don't think that a, a true, truly a musician can do that all at the same time that he's trying to sing or play. It's or like a director of a movie not being the actor as well. It's too much responsibility. Uh, yeah, even Gary, who's one of my favorite drummers, if not my favorite drummer in the world, doesn't like to play drums and produce records at the same time. Although I did get him to do it. <laughs> I got him to do it too. Just barely. But I mean, that's a great thing about Gary right there. That's the great thing about Gary Burke is he's a package deal. When you hire him to produce something, not only does he work really hard on this stuff, but he's sometimes the drummer. He can write the horn arrangements. He brings in all these musicians from all over the place, guys like Graham Maybe and, yeah. and Joel Diamond and John Patania. And he's got his Gary Burke team that he brings with him and a lot of advantages to working with Gary. You obviously were satisfied with the results. Oh yeah, Gary put in more time than he he needed to. And if you know, if you say that the thing's a masterpiece, Gary deserves a lot of the credit. You know, I was just blessed with the, these songs. Those were the first songs I ever wrote basically and and all of a sudden I got all the greatest musicians. Some of them came from Gary, some of them just you know, walked into the studio at the clubhouse and... I well, mean, one unmistakable sound on this album is the sound of the horns. Let's talk about that. We're talking about the JBs, JB standing for James Brown. The All three of these guys have been musical directors for James Brown in the past. That's correct. L yeah. List who we got. We got Maceo Parker, the legendary Maceo Parker. Yeah, Maceo Parker, Pee Wee Ellis, and Fred Wesley. I mean, these guys are heavy, heavy cats. And you got all three of them together. I don't even remember that happening before, especially locally. How did that happen? 
Well, it it turns out that James Brown went to jail, and uh, the only one that was still playing with him at that time was Maceo, and that kind of put Maceo out of a job. And he reached out to Fred Wesley, who was uh, his constant companion for years, and they they both agreed, let's try and get Pee Wee, who was working with uh, Van Morrison. He Pee Wee was Van Morrison's band director. Uh, for several years, like maybe seven or eight years, and then he left to do the J.B. Horn thing, then he went back and did another seven or eight years, and Pee Wee is a great songwriter. He couldn't get along with James Brown, and a lot of people couldn't, and he turned the baton over to Fred, and before he left the band, he taught Fred how to write for James Brown and how to m- write horn arrangements. And when I first met Fred, I said to him, I, I can't believe how much interest Pee Wee has given to my music. You know, between him and Gary, they were like obsessed with making this great record, right? <laughs> and so I said this to Fred before, you know, I met him over the telephone for the first time. And uh, he said, well, you know, Pee-wee did the same thing for me, you know. So whatever Pee-wee wants me to do, I'm always there for him, you know. Wow. So Gary said something interesting. He said when those guys got together to do the horn arrangements, they do a rundown of the song. And by the time the song came to a conclusion, they kind of had their arrangements already. They had worked together so often and so closely that they can come up with arrangements like that. Yeah. And they came up with their own, obviously. But Gary does a lot of the horn arrangements on other albums. Yeah. Did he have a hand in the arranging at all, or was it all no. those guys? No. I mean, he's not going to touch that. Pee-wee, uh, some, some of the, couple of the first songs, uh, they kind of did a little bit on the fly. And, you know, they they had 30 years of playing together, so they, they kind of... It's remarkable to watch them, uh, you know, play a concert or anything they do. is just amazing to watch. But uh, Pee Wee was work. He since he wasn't working for Van Morrison, he was just doing the JB thing, and they weren't touring yet. And so Pee Wee had some time. And I lived in a big house at the time, and I just gave him a room. And in his room, on all four walls, he had separated the songs on the record. And he would make little notes on little parts of each song, and he he did a lot of lot of in depth writing. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, <laughs> and he then, was into it. Yeah, he was way into. It. You know what he said to me, which of course never came true, but he was uh, James Brown's musical director in the '60s. And then he he was a uh, this lady called Esther Phillips. She was a jazz lady, Esther Phillips. Uh, musical director in the 70s then he was van morrison's musical director in the 80s and they said i'm gonna be willie emma's musical director in the 90s you know like, lucky man lucky yeah. man. all this talk about it i want to hear more can we play what's that song trust me is that it there's a tune on there trust me oh man yeah. i like that too you do yeah yeah can we hear As, that yeah sure it's a very simple tune it's like a you know blues thing that one i wrote before i met Wee, and and i had horn parts on it and we erased them all and let him do what he wanted Why to do not? today. Yeah. Well, well, let's hear what that work turned out to be. This is Trust Me, Willie Amrod. Why can't you play that? I don't know.
We hope you're enjoying part one of our interview with Hudson Valley musician Willie Amrod. Come back next week to catch part two.